Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. All right, so welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife's Hernia Series. Uh, I'm Vahak Nikolian from OHSU, and I'm joined today by my partner, Dr. Sean Orenstein. Uh, today, we're really excited to talk about mesh choices in the emergency setting. Uh, and to be completely clear, we've usually had this as a discussion, but today we're going to run it more like a classic BTK interview. Uh, and Dr. Sean Orenstein is truly someone I consider a mesh master. Uh, I joined OHSU's ABWAL team about two years ago after fellowship, and I thought I had a good fund of knowledge about mesh, mesh choices, and what to do in the various circumstances. And I was completely blown away with uh, Sean's ability to really put the data to good use and apply it in managing patients in very complex and diverse situations. So today we're really going to focus on the mesh master and learn from him as much as possible. So with that said, uh, Sean, welcome. And let's let's talk about mesh. Well, Vahag, thank you for that kind introduction and looking forward to uh, talking about one of my big passions of mine. And of course, that is uh, of mesh and its various scenarios and what we do for hernia repair and abdominal wall reconstruction. Awesome. So before we get going about decision making in emergency settings, why don't you like sort of tell us about your sort of how you developed your expertise and really became a, what many of us consider one of the international leaders in mesh uh, just literacy and knowing so much about it. How did it happen? Well, interestingly, I, I certainly didn't start my career thinking I was going to be a, a mesh geek or know have this kind of fund of knowledge. But um, uh, I, I was super excited to uh, join Yuri Novitsky in the lab during my residency program, kind of midway through the residency. And uh, I spent two years. We had a pretty productive lab. We had uh, it was a basic science lab, clinical lab. Uh, we basically did a ton of in vitro and in vivo experiments and basically try to get our hands on as much mesh product as we could, synthetic, biologic, bioresorbable. We really went out there and did everything we could to study various aspects of it. Um, a lot of it was on the inflammation and the inflammatory response and the foreign body response to implants. Uh, we, did a, we did a bunch of rodent models where we could literally see what that tissue response on a cellular level was to a wide variety of products and be able to compare them to each other. Uh, biomechanical testing, um, even novel products from startup companies to figure out, can we find the the holy grail of the perfect mesh? And certainly we're still seeking out that holy grail of mesh. We're not there yet, but maybe one of these days we'll get there. So so those two years really solidified uh, my passion, not only for mesh, but also of hernia repair, um, and, and, you know, it, it's really been an instrumental part of my fund of knowledge and just my um, uh, excitement for uh, for our realm of hernia repair. Awesome. Yeah. And I have to admit, you have taught me so much over the years about mesh. Uh, I've become a better surgeon because of it. And, um, you know, watching your lectures at various conferences definitely makes me a better surgeon every time. 
So with that said, uh, let's get going. Let's talk about the emergency setting. Many of our listeners maybe aren't are, uh, exclusively doing elective hernia or ab wall reconstruction, but a lot of people will be faced with like the emergency scenarios where they're having a patient present with a hernia that's incarcerated or strangulated. Uh, in those settings, what are some of the considerations you think about when making decisions about the type of mesh or uh, the type of repair you're going to do? Well, this is such an important part to talk about when it comes to hernia repair in the emergency setting. First things first is just um, how is that patient doing? Are they sick uh, or are they not sick? Or, you know, Are they in septic shock? Uh, is this a primary hernia problem? Is it strangulated obstructed bowel? Or is this something else inside the abdominal cavity that they just happen to also have a hernia at the same time or a challenging abdominal wall? Uh, you know, is it diverticulitis or some other perf viscous, you know, cholecystitis? What's the wound class? Um, is this an elderly, sickly patient? Is this something that's going to take me, you know, four, six, eight hours of tedious adhesiolysis to complete the case? Or is this something that we can re reduce the bowel and, and get out of there in a reasonable amount of time? These are all some of the things that I'm thinking about as I manage their abdominal wall and what other, what other intra-abdominal disaster is going on. Uh, and then the last really important point is, are these patients medically optimized? You know, we, we've, we've already done a behind the knife on uh, preoperative optimization and getting these patients ready to go for elective surgery. Well, if they have a hernia and or a challenging abdominal wall at the time of some other abdominal emergency, the the fact that they are or are not medically optimized can weigh in to whether we should proceed with a more definitive repair at the time of the emergency or more more likely than not we're just going to try to temporize that abdomen we're there to save their life save their bowel uh, and then come back to fight another day uh, for the hernia repair gotcha yeah great insights there um so when you're faced with these emergency uh, operations where the abdominal wall also needs to be addressed, what are some of the common tactics that people can have on sort of the forefront of their brain in terms of decision-making and what they're going to do? There's a handful of options on how to manage an abdomen uh, and, the, and a hernia in the emergency setting. Uh, one option just to close the skin. You've done your intra-abdominal work. Uh, everything's all set. Now you're ready to close. Perhaps the hernia is too large to close primarily uh, with just primary suture repair. You, there is a thought that you can just close skin and that's it. Um, I will say that's probably my least favorite option. Um, you want as much room between the outside world and your viscera. So closing skin doesn't give a, a very significant barrier. Uh, you can get dehiscence and evisceration that way. And, and also there's a risk of fistulization when your bowels, especially inflamed bowels, are so close to the skin. So I prefer to do some form of bridging trying to or, or closure, getting that fascia, at least that layer, um, separated out from the outside world and the skin. So trying to hold off on skin closure only. Um, if I can get that fascia closed primarily, whether it be with running sutures or if there's some tension on it, I'll switch to interrupted figure of eights. Um, that way, if there is any fascial dehiscence, the whole thing doesn't unravel. I, I can manage a small focal dehiscence a little bit easier than the entire fascial incision opening up. Um, and, and probably uh, more... Um, I would say a better way to fix these, if there is any significant tension on the fascia, is just to do some form of bridge repair. 
Uh, now, bridge repairs are not an ideal situation for hernia repair. We always strive for fascial closure, but these are some of the perfect times to bridge the patient. Again, you save their bowel, you save their life, um, and then uh, we're leaving them with a temporized hernia. We'll come back uh, later down the road, months, maybe a year later, to do a more definitive repair. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people have become very enthusiastic about advanced abdominal wall reconstruction techniques. But in these settings, really, it's important to just focus on the patient, the physiology, and and, and really focus on like the primary issue, which is oftentimes a visceral problem. Um, for patients who I do a bridged repair on, I tell them that we did a hernia sac reconstruction. We basically convert what was an unstable hernia sac that was causing problems to a more stable one and buy them some time to get a more definitive repair if that's what we're feeling is the best option. Exactly. Uh, so in, in terms of emergency abdominal wall, um, let's say you're, a patient comes in with uh, an inguinal hernia. Uh, what are some of like your thoughts about MIS versus open? Um, are you more favoring one versus another? In general, I favor minimally invasive approaches over open. Uh, that's just my style. I prefer MIS approaches in the elective setting. But even in the emergency setting, this is one of the few times where I think, depending on what is going on with the bowel, let's say somebody just has an obstructed uh, bowel from an incarcerated inguinal hernia. Those are some there. If you can safely reduce the bowel without any damage, um, you know, enterotomies or, or whatnot, that might be a very appropriate for a definitive repair. So that one might be using a permanent mesh, typically um, a tap or tap uh, inguinal. Typically, that's a, you want to do a tap. That way you can get inside the abdominal cavity and really evaluate the viscera and make sure the perfusion is adequate and the quality of the bowel is good. Um, that said, open repairs are still great repairs. Again, if there's no compromise to the bowel, a mesh-based repair might be appropriate. But but certainly, if there is threatened bowel or if you do if you have to do a bowel resection, then um, would want to forego any permanent mesh and uh, some type of tissue repair would be appropriate for inguinals. Gotcha. Uh, for ventral hernias, obviously, there are so many options nowadays for uh, hernia repairs, whether you're talking about a prepared sneal repair, or you're talking about an underlay repair, an onlay. Uh, a lot of people are very enthusiastic about abdominal wall reconstruction techniques, specifically retromuscular-based repairs uh, with mesh in that uh, very valuable space. What are your thoughts on uh, these advanced techniques in the emergency setting? Well, I would say that the most important thing is to not burn any bridges in the emergency setting. Uh, there might be times where it is appropriate to do a definitive repair. The classic example could be, um, again, obstructed bowel with a small to medium-sized uh, ventral hernia. You reduce the bowel. You, you alleviate their obstruction. There's no compromise to the bowel itself. That might be appropriate for perhaps a preperitoneal repair um, if they're medically optimized. Now, sometimes you can get people with morbid, super morbid obesity that have obstructed bowel. Those would be appropriate for, say, an eye pump, just an intraperitoneal underlay mesh. Again, you took care of their bowels. You do your best to close the defect. You get an intraperitoneal mesh. You bring them back. You, you have you do their pre-op optimization with weight loss, et cetera, um, diabetes management, you know, and, and all and such. And then you can come back and do more definitive repair if if it re recurs. Now, as far as what you your question asked about abdominal wall reconstruction, specifically retromuscular repairs, I would emphatically say. 
know and really try to hold off on using those super important tissue planes, these golden planes that we use on a daily basis in the elective setting for or for complex ventral hernia repair. Uh, and, and there's actually, there's a great study uh, from, the, from the Danish registry that looked at elective versus emergent ventral hernia repair uh, and showed significant increased complications with emergent ventral hernia repair uh, and some of the worst outcomes with that as far as odds ratios with increased complications was with emergent retromuscular repair. So uh, we there is data to back up this thought process of holding off on doing any complex ventral hernia repair in the emergency setting, especially abdominal wall reconstruction with retromuscular repairs. Uh, temporize the hernia, perhaps some form of bridge. Uh, and then again, I keep saying this over and over again, come back to fight another day. That is the safest option. And sometimes staging these out is is the most appropriate way to get these patients taken care of. Great. Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the retromuscular-based repairs in these settings. I really be cautious with it. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm, but sort of temper it in this setting. Um, temporizing the hernia uh, and the abdominal wall, bridging, plenty of reasons to do it, uh, prevent that evisceration, reduce that extreme tension that might be present with a patient who has distended bowel and uh once you open them up it's really difficult to bring the fascial edges together with a primary repair so bridging can work well again you're downgrading the hernia of sorts you're stabilizing the hernia sac um when you think about bridging um there are different techniques to bridging uh two principal options are the bridged inlay versus the bridged underlay I know this is kind of technical, but could you describe to the audience what is the difference between a bridged inlay and a bridged underlay? Sure. So a bridged inlay is where we sew a piece of mesh prosthetic and just sew it edge to edge to fascia. Uh, and for either of these, you can still do some partial fascia closure. You can put a few figure of eights at the top and the bottom if it comes together well without tension. But essentially, you're just taking a piece of mesh more or less sized to the fascial defect, and you're just running a suture or perhaps multiple sutures around edge to edge. So, um, so there's no overlap, but you really get mesh edge to fascial edge compared to a bridge underlay uh, where that mesh is, um, in, again, inside the abdominal cavity. And you do have wider overlap with this, but instead of sewing edge to edge, because of this wide overlap, you're typically securing that and fixing, fixating the mesh with typically multiple transfascial sutures. Uh, there are some other meshes that you can use some tacking devices with, but uh, in the emergency setting, many of these, uh, we used uh, peripheral, sort of a clockwise, clockwise uh, circumferential transfascial sutures at the edges to get that mesh up uh, opposed to the abdominal wall. And there are pros and cons to each of these techniques. Let's talk about it a little more then. Uh, so really a ton of locations where you can place the mesh, um, the bridged inlay approach. I kind of like it. It's simple. Uh, you're sewing edge to edge, to edge as Dr. Ornstein described. Uh, um, unfortunately, some of the issues with lack of overlap mean that there's less tissue mesh interface so that you can have less um, integration and higher burden for developing uh, uh, a more advanced hernia down the road. Um, bridged underlay, 
uh, more mesh overlap, more tissue and mesh interface, which hopefully results in a more stable repair and buys you a little more time before that hernia needs to be repaired. Um, so, you know, we're going to focus on mesh now. Uh, clearly, we've talked a lot about some of the thing, options uh, in terms of repair strategies. Now let's talk about mesh selection. Um, so let's start with one of the most commonly available materials that we, everyone's very familiar with, Vicryl mesh, polygalactin. Um, it's it's readily available. Everyone uses Vicryl sutures in the operating room. A lot of people, when they're in the emergency setting and are thinking about an absorbable mesh material, ask for Vicryl. What are your thoughts on Vicryl mesh? What are some of the pros and cons? Well, one of the biggest pros is that it's easy to use. It's thin, it's pliable, you can grab it, you can sew to it fairly readily. Uh, and I used to use a lot more Vicryl mesh back in the day. Um, I have since really gone away from that. And this was after enough experience with it in that we found uh, early uh, dehiscences and perhaps new eviscerations. The problem with Vicryl, it only lasts one to three months. And while it might be great for some temporizing repairs, perhaps smaller defects, um, it's really too short of a degradation cycle to provide long-term benefit. So it might be great for the first month or so, but then if that vicryl goes away and there's still too much tension on that abdominal wall, you might the patient might be right back uh, in the emergency room and, and admitted or perhaps in the OR with a new um, evisceration or incarceration or, or some other uh, catastrophe. Um, the other thing with vicryl is it's uh, because of that rapid degradation, it's extremely inflammatory. And so you would want to avoid putting that over raw inflamed bowel. So even when I did used to use more Vicryl, um, I want to make sure there's a good bed of momentum between the bowel and my Vicryl mess just because of that, those adhesions and potential for fissilization uh, in that area. Uh, but again, it's, it's it can be a useful product, but I think there are much better uh, products. Um, and one quick note uh, before we move on to other meshes that I know we're talking a lot about ventral hernia management, but some of these tenants can also be used just for challenging abdominal walls. Doesn't even have to be a true ventral hernia. Somebody could come in with perforated diverticulitis or some other intra-abdominal catastrophe, but they have a very challenging abdomen to close, perhaps after multiple washouts or whatnot. So some of these uh, tenants can be used for closure and temporizing those type of abdominal walls that didn't come into the hospital with a ventral hernia. For sure. <clears throat> there's a lot of different ways that Vicryl is produced now. So there's woven and knitted Vicryl. I highly recommend sort of, if you're ever considering using it, sort of get use and look at and see what these things look like because they perform differently in the operating room and, and some find one to be a better option than another. So definitely look into that. A lot of people also talk about cost of uh, the meshes that we use and assume that Vicryl is very cheap, but it's not really that cheap. Um, you know, a piece of Vicryl mesh costs between $500 and $1,000 in terms of hospital costs. Charges are obviously can be variable there. Um, so let's talk about another. Uh, let's talk about some bioresorbable meshes. Um, what are some of the common bioresorbable meshes that exist and and sort of are commonly utilized in abdominal wall surgery? There's a couple that are out there: um, polyvor hydroxybutyrate or P4HB um, or Phasix. Um, uh, there's Tiger Mesh. 
uh, there are other products out there. And one of the biggest differences between a mesh like P4HB and say Vicryl, whereas Vicryl only lasts one to three months, P4HB lasts about a year to a year and a half. So you're really getting a longer time span to, to bridge this hernia. Um, and so there, there's something uh, nice about having a little bit longer time uh, to allow that patient to recover, uh, perhaps get their nutrition uh, up to par for, for proper wound healing. Uh, and again, it gives you more time also for pre-op optimization for a subsequent repair. Uh, real important about any of these products is we have to remember, we're, if we're bridging hernias, that means that the mesh will be um, against viscera. So if it is a, a synthetic mesh, we have to make sure it has some type of anti-adhesion barrier. Um, or per, for biologics, they biologic meshes tend to do better against viscera and don't have a separate anti-adhesion barrier. So real important, when you go to the shelf or you talk to your OR staff about grabbing the mesh, you have to make sure it is the coded version of it with an anti-adhesion barrier. Uh, and I say this because I have seen cases where they inadvertently grab the wrong mesh and put basically a raw exposed mesh uh, and, and the, the severity of adhesions can be uh, significant. Great insights. Uh, again, we, we talk about it all the time. Really important to know the products that you're using so that you can maximize the outcome for the patient. Um, we talked about uh, phasics. There are some others. Um, and again, I, in terms of bridged inlay or underlay, um, do you think there's a, do you have a preference in this setting when you're using a bioresorbable? Yeah, I want the longest time frame I have. Um, you know, other uh, synthetic, synthetic resorbables like BioA or Inform, which is a softer, more pliable version of, of BioA. Um, that they do tend to be cheaper than some of the other ones, but the resorption cycle is about four to six months. So is that long enough? Perhaps for some people it might. Um, personally, I want as long of a time frame as I can. When I'm doing an emergency closure, it's a solid six to 12 or more months bef between the time of the emergency surgery and the time I'm doing some definitive repair. So I, I just want as long as I can, uh, anything that's going to minimize adhesions. Uh, but that said, many of these products out of the package are very strong and they can withstand a lot of tensile force. But certainly as that time frame goes on, uh, the strength of that mesh can go down uh, quite significantly. Gotcha. All right. Um, a lot of people talk about biologics. Uh, some people use them exclusively. What are your thoughts on some of the biologic meshes that exist? Let's start with human cadaveric dermis uh, in the emergency setting. Well, this is one of the meshes that I tend to use the most in the emergency setting. Human cadaveric dermis, uh, things like Alloderm, uh, there are probably other manufacturers that make a similar product. Uh, but the difference between human cadaveric dermis and porcine dermis is that human cadaveric dermis, because human skin has a lot more elastin in it, it tends to be more flexible and more stretchy. Uh, and the nice thing about that is that allows some accommodation uh, after you sew it in. Uh, so these are typically sewn as a bridge inlay, again, edge to edge, mesh edge to fascial edge. Uh, some of them, they have different shapes, square, rectangular. They even make contour versions that are used for breast reconstruction, but because of that fusiform shape, they actually can work quite well for closing and bridging the abdominal wall. Um, and because of that flexibility and compliance of the mesh, 
as the abdomen say distends in the post-op period with ileus, you actually have a little more give on that mesh, uh, which is uh, which is kind of not quite a nice feature. It also tends to be a little bit thinner than porcine dermis, so it's easier to sew. Hence the ability to do this as a bridged inlay, as opposed to the need for a wider overlapped underlay. Great. Uh, one of the things to remember about human cadaveric dermis is that because they're harvested from humans, oftentimes the sizes are not going to be as large as some of the other meshes that are either manufactured or harvested from uh, other animals. And what we're talking about suturing this in place, um, because these are biologic meshes and, and resorption cycles for all biologics are variable. You know, some of the synthetics have a more predictable degradation. The biologics are, are tough to give you a time frame. There are biologics that can stick around for a long time. Or if there's contamination or infection, they can degrade quite rapidly. So that is something to consider when we're choosing uh, a mesh product. Um, but um, regardless, when I'm suturing any of these products in place, I am using a slowly resorbable suture, uh, PDS, Maxon, things like that. Um, so there's no need for permanent suture to fixate a mesh that's designed to be a temporary mesh. And I say this because the more suture used, especially permasuture, the more potential for foreign bodies there are and perhaps stitch granulomas or stitch abscesses. So a slowly resorbable monofilament suture is very appropriate to fixate any of these meshes. Great. Um, you know, porcine dermis, what are your thoughts on porcine dermis? You touched upon it a little. Um, any other sort of insights you want to provide to the listeners about porcine dermis? Well, the nice thing about porcine dermis, it is thicker. Uh, so it is a little more durable and longer lasting typically than the human dermis. Uh, but because of that thickness, it does make it a little more challenging to sew. And so that's where sewing edge to edge can be quite challenging given the thickness of them. And so for these, if I'm going to use porcine dermis, uh, if I if, if then this is where I have a wider overlap of the fascia and do a bunch of transfascials using a suture passer. But the key thing is you have to get that mesh nice and flat. You do want to minimize buckling because the more buckling there is of any of these meshes, the more likely you're going to have adhesions to it. And real importantly, you have to have enough fixation around the perimeter so that a loop of bowel can't sneak up in between the mesh and the abdominal wall and cause an interparietal hernia, which can lead to obstruction or strangulation. Uh, but again, you do get wider overlap if you have the ability to. Some, you know, you have a frozen abdomen, that's going to be very challenging to have overlap uh, and uh, use an underlay. That's, you know, if you have a frozen abdomen with you just barely have enough fascia in view, that's where you're going to want an inlay. But if I am going to do a bridge underlay with wider overlap, uh, a porcine dermis is, is a nice thick piece to give you a good barrier uh, between the skin and soft tissue in the outside world and your, your abdominal cavity. Gotcha. All right. So let's say you do a Sorry, one. I apologize, but one last thing about cost. A lot of people talk about cost when it comes to biologic mesh and there's certainly there is a, there's a price on all of these products, but um, as you already spoke about, we're trying to prevent evisceration. We're trying to uh, limit uh, adhesive disease to it. Uh, the price of taking a patient back to the OR for an evisceration uh, will will be much more than the cost of, of a biologic mesh. So um, yes, we need to be thoughtful about the meshes we use and cost is one of those determinants, but um, we're using these for, for good reasons. And so uh, sometimes it is very appropriate to use uh, a mesh in these emergent difficult situations, despite some of the cost. 
Absolutely. So quick question. Let's say you do a bridged repair um, and now you have a, a large amount of mesh that's between your fascial edges. How do you manage this soft tissue, uh, specifically sub-Q, dermis, epidermis? Like, What is your approach to closure of the soft tissue uh, in front of the mesh? Yeah, skin soft tissue is such an important part of abdominal wall closure in general, not just in the elective setting, but in the emergent setting. Uh, in general, you try to avoid having too much exposed uh, biologic mesh. Biologic meshes can desiccate, and if they desiccate, they crack, and they will open up. And then, you, again, you're staring at bowel or eviscerate there. So you want to keep that as moist, and if you can get vascularized tissue, that is ideal. So for large wounds, even if there's some degree of contamination, uh, after I've managed all the contamination, uh, bowel, etc., I will try to do some form of skin and soft tissue closure. That might require skin flaps, uh, deep dermal sutures to offload wound tension, uh, perhaps nylon sutures or staples to try to get as much skin and soft tissue coverage over the mesh. I do not want to be staring at a large swath uh, of biologic or other bioresorbable mesh. I want to get as much skin and soft tissue, vascularized tissue on it as possible. Now, that said, that doesn't mean you can't leave some openings in your wound for wound packing uh, or, or, in fact, the other options are to close it and leave a drain in that uh, that plane between your sub-Q and your biologic mesh. So there are, are there multiple ways to close the, the abdominal wall, but uh, trying to obtain some type of skin and soft tissue coverage as much as you can uh, is very important. I agree. Uh, and And really, whenever these scenarios show up, I try my best to do as much of like the soft tissue uh, closure as possible, lay multiple drains uh, so that you don't develop seromas or other problems, and then um, offload tension as much as possible with things like a vac-assisted closure, uh, just to really, again, provide as many layers between the outside world and that mesh so you don't develop any mesh uh, complications or that are attributable to that. Absolutely. All right. So that was a really awesome sort of review. Um, as the listeners are sort of paying attention to all of the fund of knowledge that you just shared with us, what are some of your take-home points when you're thinking about patients presenting in the emergency setting with abdominal wall issues? Well, two most important things are hernias and abdominal walls in general. They can be safely temporized at the time of emergent surgery. We don't have to go primarily after the hernia. Uh, priority number one is just taking care of viscera or bleeding or other intra-abdominal uh, issues. Priority number two is then the hernia and wall. And we discussed a variety of ways of how to temporize and manage uh, those uh, challenging abdominal walls and defects. Uh, but just to emphasize again, really trying to avoid abdominal wall reconstruction uh, in the emergency setting, trying to avoid burning any bridges, save as many of these tissue planes as possible and that's where the the you could either do primary suture repair to temporize it, uh, plus or minus uh, bridging mesh with a biosynthetic or biologic mesh as an inlay or underlay. And uh, we're, we, you know, we're just we're, we're, we've taken care of the abdomen, we've taken care of the bowel, and now we just temporize their hernia, which we're leaving them with, uh, stabilizing the abdominal wall, uh, and and then have them recover from this. And you know the other important thing is is the need for a good follow up. You know, just because you did that great emergency surgery and everything looks good, 
um, that's not the end of the story. These patients do require significant follow-up. Uh, they need surveillance to see um, if, and not just if, but probably when they get their hernia recurrence. So they need close monitoring. Uh, Pre-op optimization is such an important aspect. Uh, and that way we can plan for successful elective ventral hernia repair with perhaps abdominal wall reconstruction. All right. So that was great. Uh, again, Sean, thank you so much for everything that you've done in terms of uh, contributing to the literature and our fund of knowledge about uh, MESH. And uh, again, uh, I learn so much from you every time. Uh, any other thoughts for the audience? No, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for leading this. Uh, I mean, this is such an important topic, not just for hernia surgeons, but for all general surgeons that deal with challenging abdomens and abdominal walls. So uh, I thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to have some fun discussing mesh uh, in these scenarios. All right. Thanks a lot. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.